Hey, Jay, whatever happened to Deathbird? Uh, you know, married Vulcan got paralyzed and kidnapped by a weird science cult before breaking out and popping up on the peak where she then proceeded oh, to... Oh, right, that was in Adjectiveless X-Men, right? Uh, when she was pregnant. Right. Uh, so what did the space scientists want with her again? To splice Cree DNA into her fetus. Why? Because at this point, alien DNA tampering is literally the only way left to make the Summers family tree more complicated. Oh, wait a minute, Summers? I thought we were talking about Deathbird. Look, Miles, I don't know how they do it in your family, but I was under the impression that pregnancy usually requires two parties. Oh, so Vulcan... He's the gift that keeps on giving. Okay, okay, but to go back a step, why did the Kree want Deathbird and Vulcan's kid? Oh, they didn't. But you said Kree DNA. Well, yeah, but the Kree had nothing to do with it. That was the Providian Order. The what? It's a science cult dedicated to monkeying around with weird new alien hybrids. For fun? No, in the name of interspecies galactic equality. What?! J. Rachel Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 95 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. All right, so we are back, and Jay, you are back in the studio. I am, for the first time in, like, what, a month? Yeah, the last time we did an episode together, you were on Skype, and that was weird, and I couldn't see you, that and it was, was confusing. That was extremely weird. And you're here, and you have facial expressions and a beard and everything. I, sometimes both at the same time. My god! Okay, so what are we talking about today? Well, we are back in Australia today with the X-Men. We're specifically finally picking up on a bit of a plot hook that got dangled way back in 218 and then completely forgotten for more than a year. Yes, but Claremont never forgets. He just delays sometimes. Now, the X-Men are in Australia right now. The world thinks that they're dead. They are invisible to surveillance and to electronic equipment. And one of the members of their team right now is Havoc, Alex Summers. And... As you may recall, again, way, way back last year in the comics, the reason he's with the X-Men is that he went to find them because the brood had crash landed in New Mexico, where he was living at the time with Lorna Dane Polaris in their ongoing and futile quest to finish their dissertations. Yeah. And uh, I guess he just sort of forgot to tell them. Although in this arc, the X-Men talk about how they've been tracking the brood ever since, which I guess they were just doing like in between issues. Yeah, it literally has not come up at all since then. Yes, but um, let's take a step back because it's been a long time since we really focused on the brood. Now, we brought them up, I believe, two episodes ago when we talked about Ilyana's weird dream memory thing in which a brood SKP of the brood saga had cloned a bunch of X-Men. The dream about telling someone a story about a dream about telling someone a story about a dream? I think. That's really hard to I follow. I might have added, had one, one too many repetitions in there, but the, the general idea is... Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about what the brood are. Visually, they're basically xenomorphs from Alien. Yeah, they're a little more insectoid versus xenomorphy, but there's a definite visual similarity. Culturally, they're one of the big heavy hitters of the Marvel cosmos of the alien races, along with, you know, the Shi'ar, the Kree, the Skrull. Less so now, because the last time they clashed with the X-Men, the X-Men basically trashed their homeworld. Right, and that was a long time ago. I think the last issue of the Brood Saga was X-Men 167. So, yeah, the, the homeworld got destroyed. The brood were basically destroyed themselves. Now, what they were was kind of a, a parasitic race. They had a little bit more in common with xenomorphs. They reproduced parasitically by implanting their embryos in people and members of other species. Right. But unlike the xenomorphs, the embryos don't just burst out of the chest and do like a tap dancing routine. Instead, they start taking the host over. They start possessing them. They can access their memories and their skills and stuff like that. And we saw a bit of that during the Brood Saga itself. And again, to go back, if you want to hear our coverage of that, including a much more in-depth introduction to the Brood, that is in episode 20 of The Brood They Carried. 
So that's the brood. Now, as far as the current era of X-Men, Jay, you were talking about the fact that they're in Australia. The world thinks they're dead after the fall of the mutant storyline. Right. They're living in an old Reaver base. The Reavers are a bunch of cyborg terrorists. Cyborg jerks. Cyborg jerks. It's true. Like the Shi'ar are space bird jerks. Right. There are a lot of jerks in the X-Men world. Yeah, but they are cyborg terrorists, and the X-Men have taken over their base somewhere in Western Australia. The team right now is an odd group. Storm is leading, and with her are Wolverine, Colossus, Rogue, Psylocke, Dazzler, Longshot, and Havoc, and also Madeline Pryor. Yeah, because she was with the X-Men in Dallas at the end of Fall of the Mutants and died and was resurrected with them, so the world also thinks she's dead, including Cyclops, which we've been talking about over in our X-Factor coverage. Okay, so this is a three-part story. We're going to be covering Uncanny X-Men number 232 to 234, which is a storyline collectively called Earthfall after the title of its first issue. Like we were saying, this goes back to some stuff that was happening a long time ago, and I actually really like the way this arc opens up because it tries to put everything in order. So it talks about how these things were all happening simultaneously. Storm and Wolverine were fighting the murder grandpas in New York. The X-Men, and Dazzler in particular, were fighting the Juggernaut in Scotland. Havoc and Polaris were attempting to be normal in New Mexico. <laughs> Good luck with that, kids. But as all that was going on, a shark fell on some campers. You know, I like that opening, too, because normally we'd just get a little footnote from X-Men 218. But with this, it's been so long that literally they have to, you know, reposition it among contemporary events. Yeah, exactly. And the campers that the shark fell on, those are actually the first people that we see. Now, we saw some evidence of them around the late 200 teens of Uncanny X-Men as Havoc and Polaris got run off the road by a dude and found an abandoned campsite. And that's when they found the star shark. We'll get to that momentarily that Havoc was supposed to tell the X-Men about and never did. Star shark sounds like the name of a sort of new age electronica band. Um, I would go to their shows. Mid to late 90s? Yeah, totally like with, into with, it. With a lot of lasers? <laughs> but not nearly enough. Never enough lasers. Yeah, these campers, they were just some dudes hanging out. And they're basically, I, I keep calling them classic Claremont NPCs, even though that's totally <laughs> a role-playing game term. But, you know, those kind of background characters that only show up briefly for the most part, usually just to have something bad happen to them. But they've all got names and rich inner lives and fully fleshed out backstories, despite the fact that they're really only on panel for like two pages before dying. Yes. I and mean, are never relevant again. Harvey and Janet of the Hellfire Club are, of course, our favorites, but there have been well, they're, many they're others. they're kind of the signature ones. Yeah. So, right, they're all hanging out, and there's this big meteor that hits, and they go to investigate, because one of them is sort of adventurous and spontaneous, and it turns out it's a giant shark, you guys. Awesome. Like a really big shark that fell out of space. And somehow didn't burn up in the atmosphere. Well, because it's awesome. Or, you know, explode on impact. Oh, man, like that whale on that one beach in Oregon? That was not on impact. That was on... A lot of dynamite. Uh, a similar principle. I wonder if they had to do that with the Star Shark here, because they never say what happens to the Star Shark corpse. I mean, it's it's a reasonable assumption. I think so. But anyway, they go to check it out, and there's this sort of adventure lady uh, named Sally, and she's the one who's super excited to see it, and she's standing right by it, talking about it's dead, it's going to be fine. Sally Harding, 27. She was a teacher. She wanted to be Indiana Jones. But instead, she gets chomped. There's a big sound effect and blood splatters from off panel. So I guess the star shark was slightly less dead because it's that's the end of her. star land shark. And everything just goes to hell at this point. I mean, it turns out there are some weird alien corpses. Well, they're not corpses. They're alive that were nearby that were inside the star shark. Norm Belmont was an accountant, divorced, with three kids he never saw enough and loved with all his heart. And then uh, that's two of the four campers dead immediately. The third is a woman who falls and breaks her ankle, as one does, because the brood stories are all horror stories, and a lot of broken ankles in horror stories. Fran Morrow sang solo in the church choir. That's where they met. He prays for her screams to stop, and howls inside when they do. 
Now, the he in question is a guy named Harry Palmer, who is a paramedic who is running the hell away, much to his shame, you know, as his girlfriend gets rooted. That's uh, quite a name. And so, yeah, it's it's a great cold open. I mean, cold open, like, in the X-Files sense. Speaking of, we watched the first two episodes of the new X-Files uh, last night. The second one is good. The first one is not good, but the second one is good. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I remain deeply resentful that John Doggett isn't back. Yeah, I miss that character. He was literally the only character on X-Files who I felt remotely okay about having access to firearms. <laughs> You're not wrong. He was so good, though. No, because, like, you had Mulder, and Mulder believed literally everything. And Scully took skepticism to the other extreme. And then Doggett shows up and he's like, look, I'm going to actually pay attention to evidence, but recognize that I have no fucking clue what's happening. And you're the expert. And he's, he's just he just jumps into being a really good sidekick. Exactly. Exactly. Doggett is my favorite. Doggett is the best FBI agent in the X-Files and I will fight you over it. Well, the T-1000 aside. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he totally makes a T-1000 joke and bugs at the camera. John Doggett's amazing. <laughs> But this is a good way to open a horror story. And I mean, I think I mentioned a minute ago that any brood story is going to be a horror story. The brood saga certainly was. It was like a horror action story, sure. But this one is as well. And it's a damn effective one. The brood are such a fundamentally horror monster. They're somewhere between body snatchers and xenomorphs. The sense of, you know, being taken over by something alien on one hand and on the other side, not knowing whom you can trust. Right. It's quite effective. So yeah, Harry is driving the hell away, almost runs Havoc and Polaris off the road. That's a scene that we saw way back in the two teens of Uncanny X-Men. And basically, as near as we can tell, just goes back to work, attempts to get over it and gets on with his life. He's a paramedic. And what we see is that he has, in fact, not escaped unscathed. Unbeknownst to him, Harry Palmer has been infected by the brood, but the infection only manifests when he's at work, when he's on the job, and he finds mutants. And so we get a creepy scene of a newly manifested mutant who's just, like, immolated his whole office, and the paramedic team coming in to help him, and Harry's arms turning into spiky tentacles as he gets super evil for a second. You. Yeah. Now, the next we see of Harry, he's just carrying groceries, walking home, and it becomes clear very quickly he doesn't know that he's doing this, and that's where some of the horror comes in. Yeah, there are just days when he, you know, leaves work more tired than usual. He may not know that he's doing this, but someone else does, because Harry gets back to his apartment to find a shadowy cloaked figure lurking in the corner who is none other than Psylocke, sporting some brand spanking new armor. Oh man, so I do miss her poofy princessy dress jumpsuit thing. In the defense of her new outfit, this is really princessy armor. It is princessy armor. And it is still very pink and purple. Yes, and also she's got like kind of a sweet mask, which I wouldn't yeah. think would be Psylocke's style, but it works. Very few of the X-Men actually have masks at this point, which is interesting. I'd say it has to do with being thought of as dead, but no, most of them didn't beforehand either. Wolverine does. Uh, Havoc does. Havoc does. Havoc sort of does. I mean, the the lines on Havoc's mask are so narrow. It's almost like Batman well from The Tick, <laughs> like where he's got the mask that's sort of a joke because he can't stand to hide any of, any of his amazingly handsome Nestor Carbonell face. Now I'm just imagining Nestor Carbonell playing Havoc and it no, would be- No, no, dude, dude, you know who Nestor Carbonell should play? Who? Gambit. I don't know. I mean, Batman, yes. Gambit is charming. Batman well is sleazy. I mean, they can both cross the line sometimes. No, Batman well is legitimately sleazy and legitimately charming. And the other thing is that Nestor Carbonell, with the whole Batman well thing, he can sell objectively undeliverable dialogue, which is like the prerequisite for playing Gambit. <laughs> you may be right. And to make Gambit work, he has to be charming, but also just a huge creeper. Okay, well, that could work then. That could work. See? Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, mask-based Nestor Carbonell digressions Forget Shannon aside. Tatum. Channing Tatum. Like, what the hell even? <laughs> 
side note about Psylocke's armor, we're actually going to see it again later on on a woman named Lindsay McCabe in the Wolverine solo series. Wait, what? It's kind of unclear whether she gets a copy of the armor or like the original armor somehow or what, but it's definitely the same armor. Is there just someone mass producing this? I mean, I guess. Where does Psylocke get it? That's not really clear either. Huh. Uh, Armor supply shop, you know. Okay, then. Armors are us. Okay, so Colossus and Psylocke are just waiting in Harry's apartment, and he immediately freaks out. He's immediately terrified, specifically of Colossus, and he doesn't know why. Well, to be fair, because he's an enormous metal stranger who has broken into his apartment and is threatening him over something that Harry knows nothing about. Okay, well, that's legit. But the fact that he has a specific fear of Colossus as an individual is interesting. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Because who were the X-Men who the Brood met? I mean, that was Colossus and Storm and Wolverine. Those are the current members of the X-Men who were there back in the Brood saga. Right, there was also Cyclops, Shadowcat. Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, Professor X. The Brood have this kind of hive mind through their queen. They have this sort of racial memory. And Harry still doesn't recognize that there's something foreign inside him. I mean, he strikes back at them, and he's shocked at the fact that he's strong enough to throw Colossus into the wall. Yeah, and at one point to, like, rip the door off of a car and throw that as well. But he's in panic mode. I mean, he's being chased by these people with superpowers who won't explain to him what's going on. He manages to evade Psylocke and Colossus for long enough to get onto a bus where he's immediately ambushed by Rogue. She's just hanging on there trying to reason with him, but he freaks out. The bus swerves and crashes and there are flames everywhere. And I actually really love this part. Because Rogue is, like, hauling herself out of the wreckage, and there's no evidence of what happened to the driver, but she has her thought bubble. Where's the driver? Ha! Hot-footing it down the street. Not even scratched, looks like. It's very BSNP compliant of her. Yeah, it's one of those things where Claremont's like, oh, wait, it looks like the uh, bus driver dies. I don't want him to die, so let's just have some dialogue that implies he didn't. Uh, also, her costume is destroyed, so if you are playing along at home, now is the time to take a drink. Yeah, they keep sort of scrapping and brawling, and a cop shows up to sort of confront all of them over the carnage that's going on, at which point Wolverine guts that cop. Wow, that uh, escalated quickly. And Rogue, of course, is freaked out like, dude, you just murdered a cop. Why would you do that oh, thing? Oh, come on, Rogue. You have murdered so many cops. You used to run with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I'm sure you've got like, has she? maybe she hasn't murdered cops. I assume she's murdered cops. <laughs> Dear uh, Anna Marie Raven, have you murdered cops? Love Jay and Miles. Those are the important questions. Yes. But anyway. Um, she's at least, you know, severely injured them, I, I would assume. I am sure she has. Yeah. And so as she's restraining Wolverine, the other X-Men show up and Wolverine points out that, no, he had a good reason for what he did. And we quickly find out what. As aside the, from being Wolverine? Well, aside from being Wolverine, as the alley fills up with a whole bunch of people, probably about a dozen, who have various parts of their bodies that are not so much with the human. Tentacles and spikes and insect legs and giant teeth. Miles, that's kind of racist. What? I mean, you're talking about a group of people, and, and you're talking about a book centered around the mutant population. Like, you can't just say that having tentacles and spikes makes someone a villain. What's specifically the issue here is that these people are all clearly partially brewed. Yes. I gotta say, like, as a way to end a first issue of your arc, that is a hell of a terrifying cliffhanger. I mean, the idea that the brood are up against humanity, you know, okay, that's believable. But the idea that they've essentially infiltrated humanity, that they've gotten this far, that they've taken this many people over without anyone noticing. That they've finally realized that if they want to recruit mutants, the way to do it is to go after individual isolated mutants in society rather than the ones who are already superheroes. They've developed strategy. Go brood. And this is like some Invasion of the Body Snatchers stuff here, and just the, seeing the realization on the X-Men's faces of, this is already this far gone, holy crap, is chilling. It's almost kind of an antecedent to Secret Invasion. 
A little bit, yeah. Years later. I think the brood are inherently much scarier than the scrolls, though. Oh, unquestionably. That's all terrifying. And then things get a little silly. I also want to point out that the name of the next issue is Dawn of Blood, (laughs) which I feel like crosses over fairly far into this takes itself so seriously it's become ridiculous by default. Well, no, if you just say it in like a good uh, death metal voice, Dawn of Blood. No, it's even funnier. Oh, I guess that's probably true. Also, you sound like Cookie Monster. It's death metal. Of course I sound like Cookie Monster. I don't know, but like Cookie Monster saying Dawn of Blood. (laughs) Dawn of Blood is a sometimes food. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Um, But yeah, so you mentioned that what the Brood have done is they have infected some mutants with Brood embryos. They have. And they've decided that since they've got superpowers, they also all need dumb code names. Oh, man, are these codenames dumb. Do you have a list? I do. I made a list. They are Brickbat, Spitball, Tension, Blindside, Temptress, Whiphand, Dive Bomber, and Lockup. Hmm. Those are kind of some, like, uh, I feel like they're not really trying with those codenames. Those are, like, below D-list codenames. They really are. I mean, These are the guys who are sitting in the back room of the club for, like, washed up has been 30s superheroes who never quite got off the ground i mean these are these are the guys who make the the red bee look noble and sensible the red bee was noble the red bee was amazing the red bee is my favorite superhero but (laughs) this week okay quick aside i want to tell you about the red bee because the red bee is fantastic the red bee was a high-powered attorney and he did not have any superpowers at all he had a stinger gun which was just kind of a stun gun and he had a trained bee I mean, he trained multiple bees, to be fair. But he usually just had one with him, and for a long time, he just had one. Oh, man, really? And its name was Michael. Michael the Bee. Yeah, so this was his thing. He was a superhero with a bee named Michael, and that was his power. I have a lot of respect for that. It was so great. I mean, it's amazing. And he fought Nazis. Well, that's what <laughs> you do. And he, he trained Michael to interfere in, in, in um the justice system. <laughs> well, there's no law that says a bee can't interrupt a prosecutor. I'm pretty sure that the fact that a human prompted it to do it causes the human to be culpable. I just want an Airbud movie, except it's lawyers and bees. I really want to have a serious conversation with a lawyer about this. <laughs> I think it would last about point. four seconds. <laughs> yeah, but no. So Red Bee is amazing. And these guys are not amazing. These guys suck and they have stupid code names. Yeah. And it's weird because, you know, it's such effective horror in the first issue of this arc. And there are certainly parts of the remainder of the arc that are absolutely also effective horror. But then there's these D-list supervillains who are the brood. And that takes a bit away from it. And like the way they talk even is kind of silly, too. When the X-Men express surprise that they're able to do this, one of them says, Times change, Bunky. New players, whole new ball game. By the by, the name is Brickbat, because I hit like one. I'm sorry, I speak as an editor in this capacity. I believe it is an official rule of narrative etiquette that once you call someone Bunky, you can no longer be taken seriously as a villain. That's probably true. What it kind of reminds me of was the uh, antibodies that Infecture created back in X-Factor, who just talked so comically normally. Like, just sort of random Joes, blue-collar guys, as they were fighting, even Uh, though they were monsters. Yeah, but the Infectious storyline had a lot of self-aware camp to it, and this doesn't, and that's the difference to me. Like, the antibodies talking that way was kind of genre-appropriate in a way that this really isn't. Yeah, I'll certainly agree with you there. 
But anyway, this leads to a big fight scene, which goes drastically badly for the X-Men when Rogue inadvertently has skin-to-skin contact with one of the infected brood. And sometimes when this happens, Rogue's psyche gets entirely taken over by whoever she's just absorbed, which happens in this case with a brood named Temptress who has pheromone powers, which Rogue promptly uses to also subvert Psylocke to the evil side. Now, the X-Men's telepath and their heaviest hitter are both fighting with the brood. So that's not so great. And the X-Men start thinking about how they're going to handle this because the brood are dangerous enough and arguably alien enough that killing them may be both necessary and justified. But now their friends are possessed as well, which makes them realize that the brood hosts are still also very much human in some ways. Havoc especially is having a lot of trouble with this whole thing. Which is ironic because he's the first one who kills one of the brood hosts, which promptly reverts to its human form. Awkward. Yeah, it, it really, really is. And, I mean, let's think about this for a second, though, because on the one hand, Havoc can come off as very naive and inexperienced and a a little overly emo about this sort of thing, but he's the X-Man that never wanted to be an X-Man or a superhero or a mutant or anything. He just wanted to be a normal dude. He wanted to be a geophysicist. And so this is something he really has been forced into by circumstance, and so having to confront the most challenging aspects of it, I think he's particularly ill-equipped to do that. Right? This is what started him on that path, at least this most recent time, right? Because he and Lorna were just out being graduate students, and then there was the whole thing with the brood, and then he found the X-Men in the sewer, and they threatened to kill him, and he had to fake his own death and disappear entirely, and, you know, all he wanted was to finish grad school. Oh, man. Poor Alex Summers. ABD. Yep. And so as this is going on, there's actually a cool little bit as a news crew has showed up to film the fight, and they're asking the people on the other end of the feed if they're getting it. And no, they're not, because the X-Men are incapable of being captured by cameras. That was part of the way they were resurrected by Roma, daughter of Merlin, so they could operate more covertly. And so the people at the other end are just seeing like a lot of explosions and stuff getting smashed with these weird alien things flailing around. The X-Men are not there. So the fight goes on. One of the broods, the flyer, is able to lure Storm into a fight by basically disabling a passenger jet. Wolverine, in the process of all of this, is implanted with a warrior brood embryo, which is weird because you'd think if the brood had collective memory, they'd remember that he's got the healing factor so that the brood infection never actually takes. Or rather, it takes briefly and then untakes. So I was thinking about this, and we know the brood have some kind of collective memory, like that's how Harry could recognize Colossus, for instance. But my guess is especially so far from uh, the rest of the brood, from the brood who fought the X-Men way back in the day, it's probably kind of a vague collective memory. So they might remember that the X-Men were formidable foes and Wolverine was especially dangerous, but they might not remember that part. Okay. (laughs) Well, anyway. I mean, your guess is as good as mine here. So the Brood, it's clear they wanted Wolverine. They also want Storm for a Queen Egg. Now, they only implant the most powerful people with Queen Eggs because those are going to become the most powerful Brood. Well, nominally, and we're going to get back to that later. Meanwhile, as all these things are going on, we're going to take you guys to the Red Rocks Amphitheater. Where Reverend William Conover is preparing for his Glory Day Crusade. So who is this dude? Who is Reverend Conover? Well, we don't really learn a whole lot about him other than that he is a preacher with a very wide following. But he's also very progressive and very kind and very down-to-earth and human. He's really chill for a guy who's running something called a crusade. Yeah, it's a crusade, comma, man. I think that's the differentiation. (laughs) But Conover's immediately likable. I mean, he's got stage fright a little bit. He loves his wife, and he feels bad he can't do anything about her arthritis. And he's very explicitly, and in very direct contrast to the one other major religious figure we've seen so far in X-Men, pro-mutant rights. They're so like us, these mutants, yet as different as can be. So easy to fear them, to think of them solely as a threat to human hegemony over the Earth. Aren't they? 
No more, I suspect, than children are to their parents. You love them when they're young and growing. You marvel at the wonder of their existence. Until you start to realize they're young and you're not. They'll see and experience things you never will. They're the future. And suddenly you're the past. It hurts. You resent it. Resent them. And the love isn't quite so absolute anymore. And for a few, sadly, it turns to something else. He also wishes that he were a mutant explicitly so he could cure his wife's arthritis, which seems a little short-sighted to me because the odds that he'd have the power to do that versus, say, I don't know, set things on fire. I was going to say shoot lasers out of his butt, but I guess that's uh, got less narrative precedent. Either way, really. It's true. But the point is, it's clear immediately this guy's got a good heart to the point where I was wondering what the catch was. And it turns out there's not a catch. He's just a great guy. Oh, there's a catch. It's just not actually going to manifest for almost a decade. Well, and it's not a catch with him. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. And this brings us to Uncanny X-Men 234, which opens with an amazing advertisement. For the Mile High Diner. Now, this is something we've seen Claremont do before. When he takes us to a new location, he'll give this little, like, he'll give us this little almost, like, tourist brochure summary of the place, which does make it feel a lot more real. When the Mile High Diner opened, back in the heyday of rail travel, it catered mostly to the crews who rode the big engines across the country and yard workers at Denver's Union Station who kept them running. But as the fortunes of the railroads fell, so too did the neighborhood and diner that depended on them. Hard times with a vengeance, until, barely hanging on, Mile High was refurbished, restored to a modern designer version of its original glory, and turned into the hangout hotspot for Denver's chicest retro trendoids. Surprisingly, for all of the glitz, the Mile High hasn't lost its soul. It offers today what it always did, good food, good conversation, fair prices, and in return, on the average night, there are still as many blue-collar patrons as white. And the place is as jumping at midnight as noon. I mean, I, I kind of want to go there. I, I love the idea of Claremont just always introducing settings like this. Oh man, so like they get to Magneto's volcano base back in X-Men 150 and... This was an okay volcano back in the day, frequented mostly by giant lizards and the occasional straggling caveman. Till Magneto came and really cleaned up the place. You think this is cool? You'll love to see what he did with the guest rooms and the heated sauna. <laughs> now I'm just seeing, like, Chris Claremont doing one of those kind of European travel shows going from place Back to place. Back in the day, the Xavier Mansion was one of those creepy old houses that all of the kids avoided, largely because there was a mad scientist working in its basement. But these days, under the tutelage of his son, Charles Xavier, young mutant kids love to play on its sprawling green lawns and enjoy state-of-the-art classroom facilities. <laughs> nice. But uh, yes, the Mile High Diner cannot be its idyllic tourist destination for very long because Dazzler and a guy with tentacle arms crash through the window and start scrapping on the floor. Aw, uh, don't worry. I'm sure they'll rebuild better than ever. <laughs> yep. And yeah, I mean, it's basically just a continuation of the fight we have seen before, and it gets pretty hairy. I mean, Colossus actually murders one of them. Why is it always Colossus, the most peaceful one, who's one of the first people to kill in a fight? Because he's one of the few who can just grab someone's head and snap their neck while a group of people look shocked in the foreground. That's a very good point. Although I do really like... like it's uh, a really comics layout friendly setup, and he's really the only one of the group who can pull it off right now. Uh, that makes some sense. I guess Rogue probably could. It's pretty strong. But I do really like that there's a couple who's just making out the entire time in the background, um, completely oblivious Man, to this. Man, they don't care. Uh, you know. They're enjoying the ambiance of the Mile High Diner. <laughs> Open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> yep. And so this isn't all the X-Men, of course, because some of them have been captured. Specifically, Rogue and Wolverine. 
Now, they're flying high above Red Rocks as, you know, Temptress, who's the one with the pheromone powers, is talking about how uh, doomed the human race is, etc., etc., and Wolverine is starting to change into a brood really creepily, I might add, like blood coming out of his eyes, scales kind of forming under his skin. Ew. And then he just sort of stabs Temptress and she dies. And Rogue throws him to the ground and we get the captain... Meteors have hurtled to Earth with less force, which I think is qualitatively untrue. That's probably untrue, but it's very dramatic sounding. The X-Men, in the meantime, are trying to rescue one of the other captured mutants, that being Psylocke. So they just sort of attack the car that Psylocke is in. Wait, the brood are going around in a car? The brood are, in fact, going around in a car. I'm I don't say know it's why called... I find that so funny, it's the, but it's like, the for me, that's really, really kind of the clincher to all of this, the fact that they're just like going around in a car. <laughs> I bring up this scene specifically because of Storm's dialogue in it. Now, Storm has been a very well-defined character, but not recently. Honestly, since the fall of the mutants, she's just sort of been there. Since she got her powers back, she hasn't felt very well-defined. And this arc is where I think that comes back. Bright lady be praised. Betsy has broken the brood's hold on her. Palmer and his companions fleeing, but they shall not get far. I mean, it's not the most poetic of prose right here, but that is Storm's voice. That kind of confidence and passion, that's Aurora Monroe once more. And Wolverine has been thrown to Earth, and specifically he's been thrown to Earth right next to Reverend Conover's big revival meeting. Everyone's scared of him because, you know, he's a dude with a spiky mask and claws and blood everywhere. But the Reverend goes up to him to see if he can help. And Wolverine promptly sprouts giant teeth because brood. Behold, human, the shape of your world to come. Such a shame you won't be alive to see it. Conover is firm in his faith, holds on to Logan, whose healing factor is finally kicking in and getting rid of the infestation. Conover thinks that he's managing to heal Logan with the power of his faith, which is what everyone around seems to believe as well, and Logan does nothing to disabuse him of this notion. The brood attack the rally at this point. Havoc takes one out and immediately angsts over you. Didn't even hesitate this time. Is it true what they say, that once you start killing, each one becomes easier? Which I gotta say is kind of some nice foreshadowing to the direction he's gonna go in Inferno. But he's wearing his whole costume. Well, so far, you gotta start somewhere. Well, you, you remember Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, right? Yeah. <laughs> fondly. Very fondly. And the X-Men are actually winning at this point, until Harry Palmer, the head brood, the one we're most familiar with. Sorry, his name? Harry Palmer, yeah. <laughs> just... He grabs Hannah, Reverend Conover's wife, and holds her as a hostage, basically saying, if you come any, come any closer, she's dead. And I love what happens next. Wolverine smashes straight up from the floor to pull Harry down. Like, through the stage floor and grabs him and pulls him down. This is like some Batman Arkham Knight stuff going on here. It's gloriously ridiculous. Oh, the line is so good, too. Like Ben Franklin said, bub, only two things certain in life, and this ain't taxes. But imagine if it were. Wolverine grabs him and pulls him through the floor into a really nice, very calm accountancy office and sits him down, and they just start going over itemized deductions. <laughs> Bub, that was a business lunch. You don't have to pay taxes on that one. Oh, man. Wolverine, two-fisted accountant. I like this plan. I'm really into this. And Wolverine prepares to kill Harry, and this, for me, is when it gets probably the most chilling the arc does ever, because the brood embryo inside, being smart, turns Harry back to his completely human self, including his completely human mind. Harry doesn't know why he's here, 
or what happened or who this dude about to stab him in the face is. He's terrified. Fortunately for the human race, it decides to do this in the hands of Wolverine, who gives zero fucks and impales him through the skull anyway. I don't think it's that he gives zero fucks. I think it's that he realizes that this guy is effectively dead regardless. And that if he lets him live, he's just going to do more and more damage. That this is a trick that would work on somebody who maybe was a little bit more soft-hearted, but it doesn't work on Logan because he's been more utilitarian about life and death for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just love this idea that the Brood, not only are they these creatures that will slowly corrupt you and take you over, but they leave you intact to use as a tool just to bring out when it's convenient and you have no say in the matter. It's terrifying. I want to take a moment to digress and talk about Conover's wife. Hannah. Immediately before the fight, Hannah Conover is pulled aside by a paramedic on site, and this paramedic, Josie, we're specifically informed, is Harry Palmer's partner. And she says, you know, I can fix your hands. And Hannah's like, cool. And afterwards, Hannah's hands are entirely fine. And we see the paramedic in the foreground kind of looking shifty. This doesn't get developed further at the time. It just sort of gets left ambiguous. And the paramedic looks a lot like Raven Darkholm, one of Mystique's personae. So I was wondering what was up with this paramedic, what happened with Hannah Conover. And as it happened, I went online to look this up. And just then someone tweeted us a link to a CBR article that had just gone up about dangling plot threads with the title along the lines of, is there a frozen woman in the X-Mansion basement? The answer to which is yes, and it's Hannah Conover. This issue, X-Men 234, came out in 1988. We're not going to see Hannah Conover again until 1996, eight years later, in the X-Men versus the Brood miniseries, when she'll pop up again, traveling with her husband and apparently having gained the power of faith healing. In fact, she had been infected, Joey the paramedic infected her with a Brood Queen embryo, and she's been going around looking like she's faith healing people and actually building up a massive troop of Brood. Now, Hannah is special. Unlike most people, she's actually aware of the brood infestation. She's trying to fight back against it. And the solution the X-Men finally come up with is to cryogenically freeze her. They make some noise about sending her to Muir Island, but that never actually happens. And the plot line was never picked up again. So presumably, there are shards of her around from one of the many explosions that's completely destroyed the Xavier Mansion since, which is a little bit ghoulish. But um, that is the last we see of Hannah Conover, and that is the explanation for her miraculously cured arthritis. Oh, man, that's really depressing. Yeah, it really is. Well, anyway, the Reverend Conover, who doesn't know about any of this right now... Because it's not going to happen for another eight years. After the X-Men make their escape, uh, having defeated the Brood, goes on to preach about essentially human mutant equality. I mean, his take is, hey, they may not be exactly like humans, but we're all on the same side when stuff like this, being, you know, alien invasions, happens. And he's really awesome and inspiring, and I love it when that happens. So clearly the trick to human mutant unity is to find a bigger, nastier common enemy. I mean, basically. Okay. Yeah. So that's sort of a happy-ish ending. The X-Men return triumphant. And so the X-Men return to their town, where nothing is what it seems, celebrating their victory above while blissfully unaware of the nightmare spawning below, where Madeline Pryor lies, more than alive, less than dead, transfigured by a dream that's fast on the way to becoming reality. So yeah, let's talk about that, because across these three issues, something that Jay and I haven't talked about yet is what Maddie's been up to back in the Outback base. Oh boy, has she been up to something. Well, let's start with a brief recap of who Madeline Pryor is and what her deal is so far. 
there is a good deal more to Madeline Pryor than meets the eye. Specifically, she can turn into a monster truck. Right. Well, I mean, who can't? That's not true, but I wish it were. Yeah. So Madeline Pryor is a woman that Cyclops met after Jean Grey died on the moon, or rather after Dark Phoenix died on the moon, etc., etc. What we know about her in terms of backstory is that she was a commercial pilot who was involved in a horrible plane crash that she was the sole survivor of, um, and that she looks a whole, whole lot like Jean Grey. Like almost identical, in fact. Yeah. Now, they got married, they had a kid, but when Jean Grey came back from the dead, Cyclops left to go find her. And shortly thereafter, Madeline was attacked by the Marauders, Mr. Sinister's mutant-killing army. And her corpse washed up in Alaska. Cyclops went back trying to find her, was able to identify it. As far as he knew, she was dead until the video of the X-Men in Dallas popped up saying, you know, we're going to go sacrifice our lives. And apparently she'd been alive all that time, but their kid was still missing. Now, she didn't know where Cyclops got off to. As far as she could tell, he just left for mysterious reasons and was sort of a jerk deadbeat husband and dad. He really was. He was kind of an asshole about it. He was. After she was attacked by the Marauders, she was rescued by the X-Men in San Francisco when the Marauders came after her again. She's been hanging out with the X-Men ever since. She's sort of been their computer communications person since they got to the Outback. Yeah, and she's in the Outback with the X-Men. She was with them in Dallas and chose to join them in sacrificing themselves to close the portal forge it opened. And so she's sort of the ninth member of this eight-person team. She's the one back at base helping them out. And, and everything has been going great. She is the one who is going to be mostly directly relevant and the most direct catalyst to the next really big upcoming X-Men event. Yes, she is. And here is where that really, really starts in force, or at least where the part of it that's not about the techno-organic virus in limbo starts in force. Now, Madeline isn't a mutant as far as she knows. She's a baseline human, so she doesn't go out with the X-Men on missions. What she's been doing instead is shopping in Sydney, picking up some stuff they need, getting her hair done, getting a new outfit, and teleports back by way of Gateway, who is currently the X-Men's in-house teleporter. She comes home, heads downstairs, and turns on the news only to see, for the first time, Cyclops and Marvel Girl, Jean Grey, back from the dead in X-Factor. And she puts two and two together very quickly and realizes, wait a minute, when he left, he was going to find her. He was going to find his original love and he just abandoned me. But she's supposed to be dead. And, and the way they're standing, relating to each other, no wonder he left me and our baby. It's clear as day. He loves her the way he never loved me. And she smashes her fist through the monitor, which promptly zaps the hell out of her, knocking her unconscious. What Maddie dreams is that she is an angel. She's basically herself, but she's an angel. She's got wings. She's super special. She and Scott are living happily in Alaska, raising their kid when Gateway, again, the teleporter, shows up and blows up their house. Now, we've known Gateway could do some weird dreamy stuff a little bit, but this is the first time we've really seen him do so to this degree. He is showing up in her dream and altering the course of it. Well, as far as we know, she's just dreaming this. We don't really realize that Gateway himself is interacting with her dream until a little bit later. But the house blows up, and from its wreckage comes this faceless, featureless, you know, sort of almost mannequin female figure whom Scott immediately runs to. Maddie is, of course, horrified, and I mean, I don't blame her, because Scott looks at her. Time to lose those wings, Maddie. You're not supposed to have them anyway. You can't really fly. You're not special like us. You're only human. And he takes the hair off her head and rips her wings off and takes the facial features off her face. And just pulls them smoothly off, leaving a flat surface. I'm really sorry, but I loved someone else first. And best. Her needs take priority. There, that's better. A few more details. The finishing touches pulled from the copy. And the original will be restored good as new. And what he's basically doing is he's stealing everything from Maddie's face and head and body 
and putting them on the mannequin to make Jean Grey. And leaving Maddie the faceless, featureless figure that Jean was initially. Man, this is such good foreshadowing. Ah, so cool. It's also such amazing nightmare logic. I mean, it really is terrifying. God, yeah. I joke, but Inferno is basically the major universe-shaking crossover event equivalent of waking up from a nightmare really mad at someone. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. And so Maddie's just left, you know, a nothing, as Scott and Jean fade away now in their X-Factor costumes looking very happy. And she's left alone in what's now a desert. Before Maddie are crossroads, in one direction she can head back to the X-Men headquarters, the other one just leads into the desert, and that's the route she takes. Which is the point where we see that Gateway is in fact hanging out watching her dream, which is completely weird. Well, and the implication that I got here is that he's sort of guiding the dream. He's sort of the one pulling her into this almost Wraith the Oblivion-like harrowing. That's really invasive of him. It is, it's true. I mean, I feel like he's probably got good intentions. Like, he's trying to give her the option to work through her trauma and get over it and be a normal person again, but she doesn't do that. Yeah, but you don't just do that to a person. Yeah, yeah, usually therapists don't just show up in somebody's house in the middle of the night. It's true. Right. Yeah, she walks under the sun, it melts away the featureless face, and she reemerges as Madeline Pryor, as herself. And we get, you know, this kind of intense bit of narration. There is no mercy to this land. Nothing remotely soft or gentle. The sun is a furnace, the desert a forge, paring her down to her essence, making her one with the land. And when the weapon is tempered, it is cooled, the better to be honed to a killing edge, and ultimately to be used. At which point, Madeline trips over a skull, falls into a lake, and as she comes out, is handed a ragged blanket cloak something by a figure who turns out to be everyone's favorite, Dave Sim, Cerebus reference big purple demon dude, Sim. Now, Sim is a demon from Limbo. Specifically, he's a demon who is the primary rival of magic, Ileana Rasputin, who's the current ruler of Limbo. What we know about Sim is that he is completely cruel, he is completely conscienceless, And he is currently infected with and spreading through Limbo, Warlock's techno-organic virus. Yeah. Now, this is kind of out of nowhere because we've seen a lot of Sim and New Mutants, of course. We've seen occasionally Magneto or Colossus go into Limbo to help Ilyana fight Sim. But Madeline Pryor has no connection whatsoever with Limbo, Sim, Demons, the techno-organic virus, any of that. Yeah, Madeline's a wild card in a lot of ways. And that's part of what makes her so interesting. I'm going to come back to that. And Sim guides her to this sort of golden gazebo with a fancy feast laid out. There's a lizard drinking wine out of a bowl, and he touches it, and I'm assuming he's supposed to infect it with a techno-organic virus, but it just sort of looks like he turns it to gold. Oh, dream logic. And then pours the wine that was in its mouth into Madeline's, which is creepy. Don't do that. That's bad hosting. Don't give your guests lizard wine. It's just weird because it looks sort of, like, opulent despite the fact that it's really gross. It's well handled artistically. And Sim is being really friendly. Maddie doesn't know what to make of any of this. This is so strange, almost frightening. I I feel like I'm flying blind with a thunderstorm all around, only I don't know where. Don't you just hate that? Being at the mercy of forces beyond your control? Wouldn't you rather shape your own destiny than play the perpetual victim? I'll survive. Bully for you. Don't you yearn for something more? And he's holding up his hand with each claw a picture of a potential her, with the potential specifically to hurt Scott back for what he's done. And so she picks a version of herself on one of Sim's claws that's sort of an evil face of hers, figuring... What the heck? It's only a dream. At which point Sim stabs her. Wrong! There are no dreams. Only different shapes, different orders, different tastes of reality. 
and you've just bound yourself to mine. And as she falls, the cloak he's given her falls away, revealing an outfit in distinctly questionable taste that you will get very, very, very used to over the next year. Yeah. And so that's kind of where we leave off the X-Men back home from a successful fight against the Brood, Madeline Pryor lying in a small pool of blood in the basement of their outback base, having just had a really weird dream that's a hell of a lot more than a dream. We've mentioned a few times in a few preceding episodes that a lot of what we're seeing right now in the B-plot of a lot of this era of X-Men and across all the titles is the build-up to Inferno. To that end, we are introducing a new feature, a new sidebar on the podcast, Inferno Watch. And that's where we'll tell you all about the various bits and pieces that are leading irrevocably toward the climax of this whole damn era of X-Men, that being Inferno. So this week, we've specifically got Madeline's decision to take the path less walked and to choose option evil, as well as the first appearance of what will eventually become the iconic Goblin Queen costume. And of course, the meeting of Sim and Madeline, which will not go anywhere good. For that matter, no meeting with Sim for anyone ever goes well. It really doesn't. So, things are slowly, quite literally, going to hell. That has been this week's Inferno Watch. And in the meantime, you've got questions. Black Lois Lane asks on Tumblr, I love reading comics and big trades, but I very much dislike buying floppies. In the same way I can't watch shows week to week, my heart can't take it, I adore getting to snuggle up with a big collection of content. However, I'm afraid this buying habit hurts the actual comic writers and artists by making it seem like people aren't interested when it's quite the opposite. Does waiting for trades hurt creators financially? If I want to support smaller comics, do I just have to buy floppies? Okay, the answer to this question is a little complicated, and it's really awful. Because the way comics exist as a business is, I think, pretty much unique in the retail landscape. And that's because of something called the direct market. Comics is essentially a resale business. Comics are non-returnable. So comic shops order a certain number of an issue based on estimated sales and resell them to the customers, to the readers. Now, what that means is that series don't just live and die based on the retail sales. They live and die based on pre-orders because that's what determines how much the comics shops buy, which is in turn what the sales figures come from. It's not the ultimate sales to readers. It's the sales to comic shops. This is a mess and it's because of the way the pre-order system works as well, like series are getting solicited and ordered months before they come out. So often, you know, the first three issues worth of frontline sales have been determined before the first issue is even done. And, you know, series will surprise people. Series will sell out and get reprinted if the print numbers, which are based on, again, those pre-order figures end up being too low or if the series really takes off. And obviously, digital sales change that landscape somewhat too. But the answer is that ultimately, If you want to significantly vote for your dollars, what you have to do is actually not just buy single issues, but pre-order them through a comics retailer. Again, it's a weird system. It's a really broken system. Everyone is aware that it's a super broken system, but partly because of Diamond's distribution monopoly, partly because of the way the direct market is set up and was established when it first became a thing. I think mostly in the mid-80s, I feel like the retailer-publisher relationship was largely the work of a woman named Carol Kayla. She was at Marvel in in those days. And again, I'm going to refer you back to Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, for a lot of stuff on this. But I can also link to a couple articles in the As Mentioned that have more details about this because it's really interesting and it's really, really profoundly frustrating. Because, yeah, I am entirely with you. My default form for a lot of comics would be as trades. And there's not a good answer 
to this. There's not a good way to handle it. The whole structure is so stacked against any logical or sane decision-making process that I don't really have a good answer for you on this one. Sorry. So on that cheerful note, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, how do y'all deal with the never-ending aspect of the X-Men line? I keep thinking I might like the X-Books for the long-running character-based narratives, but long-running doesn't mean endless, and the lack of endings weirds me out, especially when the endings you do get are almost always appended somewhere down the line. Does that bother y'all, or is it part of the fun of comics? So I've learned from doing this podcast and, you know, having to break things up into bite-sized chunks that you actually do get a number of endings. I mean, you get endings of arcs, you get endings of eras. So for instance, Earthfall, which is the arc we covered today, it's got a pretty complete beginning, middle, and end. It's a solid, complete story. Yes, it will be referred to again. Yes, it has a lot of stuff going on in the background that will continue and affect other plots. But by and large, you can read it by yourself and it makes sense. Similarly, once we finally do get to Inferno... That'll be the end of this whole era. Things are going to kind of reset a little after that. So, you know, you're never going to get the full story unless you read dozens of years worth of stuff, but you can certainly get stories that do feel complete. Would it be nice to get a real ending, like Sandman or Why the Last Man has? Yeah. But honestly, for me, the chance to spend more time with these characters is always going to outweigh that. For me, it's really just a matter of being a different format. As Miles said, it helps look at individual arcs instead of, you know, X-Men as a whole story. Because the thing is, X-Men and ongoing superhero comics in general are fundamentally serial. Like, they exist to keep on getting extended on and on and on and on and to have chapters, but to just be continual, ongoing sagas. In the same way that there are stories that exist to be short stories and are structured around that, stories that exist to be novels and are structured around that. And it's just a different format and a different kind of investment and enjoyment. I think it definitely does require or help to have a degree of detachment. Um, one of the things that I have had a lot of conversations with is, you know, if you've got a favorite character, for instance, they're going to be written really unevenly across 50 years because it's going to be a ton of different eras and a ton of different creative teams handling them. And so looking at the whole thing as a big ongoing exercise in interpreting a set of iconic images and ideas in different ways over a very long time helps. And just being able to say, well, the ones that count are the ones I like, and there's enough that I can really pick and choose, and to choose the points where you want to engage and invest and go in it. I think definitely being uniformly, completely all in on an ongoing story like this is, is, is a lot harder, and it's not something that I think I could sanely sustain. Yeah. Now, as for endings being overwritten, that definitely can happen through the almighty retcon, but you know... A retcon doesn't invalidate what came before. I mean, yeah, it turned out that when Dark Phoenix died on the moon, that was not in fact Jean Grey, but the Dark Phoenix saga is still a damn good story, and a good retcon will take care to not damage that too much. Yes, it wasn't Jean Grey who died on the moon, but it was a living, feeling entity, and so even with that knowledge in mind, the story is still really poignant. A bad retcon? Well, that's a different story. I mean, bad story elements can be damaging in lots of other ways. Right. And having a narrative that lasts that long and goes through that many permutations means you get a lot more bad stuff, but you also get a lot more good stuff. You know, you've got 50 years worth of both. So we are a listener supported podcast via our rad rad patrons. And some of those levels of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a number of fictional characters. I believe I am turning it over today to the Demon Sim. Hey, sweethearts. It's just a dream, right? So why not indulge a little? Sim promises it's safe. That dark side you always worry about, Solheims? Here's a great place to play, consequence-free. And Cascara, how about a little revenge? You've been hurt. Hurt back. Betcha it'll feel great. Just like these sexy new outfits, as ragged as you. 
and Sim won't tell a soul. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men come out on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, recaps, and much more. Our show is totally listener-supported and ad-free, and that's made possible by our amazing Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to subscribe and help us out, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. We'll be back next week to look at Evolutionary War, complete with dinosaurs, mole men, and a villain so ridiculous even Apocalypse stops by for an intervention. (laughs) 